We were talking about Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 here. Let's begin with prayer, right? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to gather and together and study your word and encourage one another in our faith. And we thank you for the grace you've shown us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, we're studying Hebrews chapter 6. Let me get this thing started. There we go. Okay, Hebrews 6 and verse 4 is where we began. Let me read the passage again, and we'll get back to where we were last week. For in the case of those who have been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful for those whose sake it is tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless, close to being cursed, and ends up being burned. So, we began a discussion last week about this dire warning against apostasy. And we are discussing the issue of who are apostates. Are they people who at one point were indeed born-again Christians? Or are they people who we thought were but went out from us, as John said, because they weren't really of us. And what does this say about the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, if indeed there's a warning about falling away? So it's definitely a difficult passage from anybody's perspective. And as I pointed out last week, just to give you a little, little review, even for those who don't believe in the security of the believer, they still have a problem with this passage because it says it's impossible to renew them. And so most people that believe you can lose your salvation also believe you can get it back again. And so they, this passage is a problem even for that because it says it's impossible. So if somebody actually had committed this series of apostasy, it wouldn't do any good to even preach to them. They would never, ever come back. They would never listen. But as we said last week, it also is encouraging because if someone is concerned about their salvation and concern about whether they've committed this or not, their very concern and desire to come to the Lord would be evidence that they haven't done this. Right? Because they'd just be hardened and they'd go their way and blaspheme God and wouldn't want anything more to do with Him. Okay, so I was, I think, did somebody make a check mark where we were? Where were we at the top of page two? I thought so. Uh, I think I quoted Calvin on this. And Lenski said the word blasphemy is not used here as it is in the passages, but it's the same idea. Oh yeah, we were talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in um, Matthew 12. And the Reformers, Luther and Calvin and then others of the Reform understanding of the faith. Oh, sorry Dick. Anybody else need one? Um, believed that apostasy was the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Was blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And I think there's some evidence that that's correct. Kistelmaker says, deliberately sinning against God in full awareness and knowledge of God's divine revelation constitutes sin against the Holy Spirit. This sin does, God does not forgive. And then uh, we wanted to look up this passage, Hebrews 10, 26 through 29. Let's start over here. Tim, could you look up Hebrews 10, 26 through 29? But if we, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemy of Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant and sanctified him, 
and who has insulted the spirit of grace. Wow. That's another warning about apostasy. And notice there that it says that an apostate has insulted the spirit of grace. The passages in um, Matthew 12 talks about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews 10, it talks about insulting the spirit of grace and trampling underfoot the blood of the covenant. So this is very serious, and I think that it is correct to uh, associate this with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, we want to look at Numbers 15. Let's all turn with that together. Numbers 15, starting with verse 22. This passage helps uh, help me understand Hebrews. When I ran across this, some many years ago, I ran across this passage in Numbers, and I read it, I thought, that is what Hebrews is about. Numbers 15, starting with verse 22. But when you unwittingly fail and do not observe all these commandments. Notice when it says when. It doesn't say if. Okay, so under Moses, it was assumed that everybody's a sinner. And they're going to need the Day of Atonement. Alright? So it says when you unwittingly fail and do not observe all these commandments that the Lord spoke to Moses, even all that the Lord had commanded you through Moses from the day when the Lord gave commandment onward through your generations... Then it shall be, if it is done unintentionally, without the knowledge of the congregation, that all the congregation shall offer one bowl for a burnt offering as a soothing aroma to the Lord. And let's go to verse 25. Then the priest will make atonement for all the congregation of the sons of Israel, and they shall be forgiven, for it was an error, and they have brought their offering, an offering by fire to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their error. So all the congregation of the sons of Israel will be forgiven with the alien who sojourns among them. For it happened to all the people through error. So it talks about unwittingly, unintentionally, and through error. And it says, if a person sins unintentionally, then he shall offer a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement, and he shall be forgiven. Then it says, but let's go to verse 30, but the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is a native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord, has broken his commandment, he shall be cut off, and his guilt shall be on him. Now you notice the distinction between one kind of sin and the other? One is defiant, blasphemous, and it's in a sense the person says, I have a right to this, I don't even need to be forgiven. That's, and I think that this is the same idea you find in Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10, particularly Hebrews 10, because it says they've, been, they've trampled under, regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant, and trampled underfoot, you know, uh, what God has done, and insulted the spirit of grace. And so, I think that what we're being warned about is this, this whole concept of blood, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I think it goes through both covenants, the Old Covenant, the Gospels, and Hebrews. Yes? You know, it's this thing to prove themselves a workman, rightly dividing the word. They say they fell away. Well, you know, every individual has a testimony. Well, let's be a, a spiritual investigator then. What do they fall? They say they've fallen away. They're Christians, you know, like those that have the atheist preachers and on and on. But if you investigate them, ask them what their testimony is, what they fell away from, I have yet to hear the gospel. Yeah. Everybody says, I'm a Christian. Everybody's Christians, but they don't testify to the gospel. All these preachers say, I was a preacher and no longer am a believer, like the head of the atheist. She fell away, or said she was a believer because her uh, girlfriend died in childbirth. Well, first of all, she wasn't even a believer. Most of these preachers, like talk, well, you're getting out of scripture, out of the out of the scriptures. They haven't fallen away from nothing. They haven't belonged to nothing. They're okay. testifying that they were in the paper. We were believers, and and we we 
left it, and now we're preaching this. I've yet to hear a testimony. You have a yeah. testimony if you're a believer, a true believer, right. and hear one of them and then say that he's no longer doing it. All their testimonies I've heard is they're not even the gospel. So you're saying that they went out from us because they weren't of us. Of us, right. Okay. A debt? I'm wondering about the difference that these people, they were Jews, they were Israelites, they were part of that thing, and some made a choice, unintentionally, okay, they made a mistake, but others actually made a choice, which is negative in this sense. So, do you get the idea? Um, can you draw the analogy then? Because we're nothing, then we're Christian. Yeah. And then. Well, I think this is a warning. The warning, I haven't. Um, we talked, you were here last week. We were talking about, I kind of gave where this thing is going, so we know where we're going. I'm, I, here's the position I'm going to defend, which I'm defending in this paper. And by the way, you're free to have other views on this because there's a lot of them out there and I can't claim mine's the definitive one. But my view is this, that the warning is valid for all Christians, but that in the case of the truly regenerate, the warning will be effectual. And God will use it to keep us from doing this. But that there are actual cases of people that appeared to be Christian, like the Judas, who was one of the twelve. And as far as they knew, he was just as much a disciple as the other eleven. Until later, you know, Jesus said he had a devil from the beginning, but they didn't know that. And so there will be actual cases of people who will depart and become died in the whole blasphemers, like you're talking about. But I don't believe they were ever truly regenerate. Now, that's my opinion. And I, I'm going to try to defend that here in this paper. But I'm telling you, I have, I've read some of the greatest minds and scholars in history on this, and they don't all have the same opinions. So I, I can't claim that you have to believe me. All right? Just look at the evidence. Using Dan's friend, the atheist, as an example now. Dan would have two choices as a Christian. He could either continue to witness to that person, not knowing if that's the case or not. Right. Or if we were to just go by what this says and what we think about that person, he would just be wasting his time. Right. So it would always be the, the right thing to do would be to continue to witness to them. Because we don't know. We don't know. Yeah, Dan has a friend who used to be a charismatic pastor who is now an atheist. All kinds of men. I have yet to hear a testimony yeah. that's scriptural. I mean, you know, that yeah. oh, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. You know, for three years telling me that. I know that. I know that. But you don't think he's the only way after three years of investigating him. There's other ways besides him. Believe in Jesus. You know, bam, I believe in Jesus. But yeah, Jesus plus everybody else. Yeah, so, I, I, okay, so, I agree, good. Keep preaching the gospel, yeah. <laughs> well, that's how they are on TV. I love Jesus, Jesus, you know. And you know what's the testimony? Brother Hagen, brother, uh, what's, you know? Don't watch it. <laughs> Don't watch it. Okay, Dick. Uh, we warned him. We told him that we that Dan is called Thunder Dan. <laughs> I introduced myself as father. <laughs> <laughs> Just to see, they try to get a rise out of him. And, 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 and Dan was, didn't skip a beat. He says, there's only one father in heaven. <laughs> okay. Now, do you get the idea of Numbers 15? Do you see why it is a lot like Hebrews? The defiant one is a blasphemer. Alright, that's that, that's the word is in common there. So you have blasphemy, you have blasphemy in Matthew 12, blasphemy in Hebrews 10. And so I'm suggesting that this all is ties together. Welcome! Hi. Um, do you want to get her one of these? We're studying Hebrews 6 here, okay? Um, Defiance is basically saying, I don't need to, I don't need to atonement. I'm not going to go by, I'm not going to waste a bull, so to speak, on the day of atonement. I'm fine. I didn't sin. And they call that blasphemy in, in numbers. Whereas the rest of the congregation very well understands that they're sinners and then they need their, their sins washed away by the blood. So the defiant one doesn't, won't admit the need. And that's what is called blasphemy. Um, 
Okay, defiance is blasphemy and it shall not be forgiven. On my article, page two of center column, um, I'm, I'm, I'm making a distinction here and saying this isn't about backsliding as we often call it. And the illustration would be the difference between Judas and Peter. And in the Old Testament would be the difference between David and Saul. David sinned very grievously, but God forgave him. But Saul, who did less, Saul's sin wasn't as serious as David. Saul went and did a sacrifice when he wasn't supposed to, and he took spoil when he wasn't supposed to, First Samuel 15, but he wouldn't admit his need. Saul, Saul says, oh, the people sin." He said, all right, uh, and he would not admit he sinned. And finally, Samuel kept after him. He said, all right, I'll tell you I sinned, but don't let the people find out. Amen. And then he built a monument for himself. And so Saul was the blasphemer. Amen. And David, who committed a worse sin, but yet was convicted and, and confessed and repented, was forgiven. Judas, I don't believe, ever got right with God. But Peter did. Peter did. All right. So, yes. Is that what you? That's Nicole singing that. Okay, we're going to get a. a, a that's Psalm fifty-one. We're going to have a treat during church, and Nicole's going to sing. Well, you will have joy, although it will, it will be part of it, even in the worst, in the worst situation that you can be in. And I've been in some bad ones, and people have been in worse ones than I've been in. But you may—that doesn't mean you're just happy and giddy all the time. But you don't actually lose the joy of salvation. The joy of salvation isn't uh, just a superficial emotion, but it's this uh, ultimate knowledge that no matter how bad everything gets. You still have the Lord. You know that? <laughs> Amen. And that's what won't be taken away. Yes. How can you preach with any authority? Jesus says all authority has been given to me, yet Jesus Christ lives around. So you're teaching, and how can you preach with any authority if you don't understand eternal security that God will keep you? It's like when I taught the children for years before the Catholic Church taught me. I said, I'm a bus driver. I take you kids to the zoo. And on the way, I say, I don't know how to get you there. And the kids say, what kind of Indian are you? You're supposed to be able to get me to the zoo. <laughs> well, you know what? I'm teaching about heaven. And I'm telling people how to get there with God's authority. And I know without a shadow of a doubt if they put their faith in Jesus Christ and get there. How can you preach with any authority? Like I say to Pentecostal preachers, once saved, always saved God. Oh, no, God can't keep you. He can save you by grace, but he can't keep you. You know, how can you preach with any authority, stand on the God's word, and you don't know that he can keep you? That's the Catholic Church all over again. There are no one of you there or not. Seriously. That's a little hell. You used to preach in the name of Jesus Christ. You know without a shadow of doubt. He said, not one iota of my word. All the saints, all the heaven will pass away before one iota of my word. So if you can't stand on that and preach with authority, it's sad. That's the gospel. You're preaching with authority. Not your authority. Jesus Christ within you. He is the way, the truth, the life. He says it. No one comes to the Father. So when you're telling a man that he can come to Jesus Christ and his sins be paid for the shedding of the blood, he rose from the dead, you can stand on that word. And if you can't, heaven and earth to pass away. Because God means business. Okay, Dan. (laughs) And he'll proclaim it. Dan, we're going to bring you out on the street. um, What I mean is the priest is. Oh, well, God can save you by grace. Oh, you know, no... can't keep you now unless I show you the ten steps or whatever I'm going to give you. you know, how can you, you know, have any joy in your salvation? Well, they don't sometimes. I mean, it just it breaks my heart. Well, let's talk about apostasy, all right? Back to the... <laughs> we warned you. All right, back to the text. It says, fallen away. That's where we get the idea of apostasy. Fallen away is the Hebrew word, or the Greek word in Hebrews chapter 6. 
And uh, center column, page two, implies an entire renunciation of Christianity or going back to Judaism or wherever you came from, heathenism or sin. I quote uh, Barnes, I quote Calvin, says, but the apostle speaks not here of theft or perjury or murder or drunkenness or adultery, but it refers to a total defection or falling away from the gospel. When a sinner offends not God, not God in some one thing, but entirely renounces His grace. So when we're talking about apostasy, we're not talking about backsliding. We're talking about actually renunciation, actual renunciation of faith. So this is a serious thing that we're being warned about. Now let's look at the illustration, the tilled ground. So the author says of Hebrews says this, For the ground that drinks the rain which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful uh, to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless, close to being cursed, and ends up being burned. So that is an illustration from tilled land. So what does he mean? The work of the Spirit through the Gospel is a work on the human heart. The human heart is the land that's being tilled by the Gospel. And this the seed is planted, the Gospel received by faith, brings forth fruit. Remember the parable of the seeds and the soils? The soils and the seed, I should say. Um, thorns and thistles reminds us of God's curse, Genesis 3.18. And blessing and cursing obviously are opposites, and that reminds us of the Old Testament where they, if the people uh, walked away from God and went after other gods and broke covenant, they were under a curse. But if they were faithful to God, they would be blessed. Okay? So blessing and cursing are important themes. Those who receive the promises from God and believe God are great people of faith. That's Hebrews 11. Others received the same promises but died in unbelief and disobedience, Hebrews 3, 16 and 19. So we have those two options here. Great promise, greater promises under the new covenant, according to Hebrews. The promises are better. The covenant is better. The high priest is better. Everything is better under the new covenant. But if you um, renounce this and trample underfoot the blood of the covenant, the punishment is more severe, according to Hebrews. It's, it's worse than what happened under Moses. And most people think, boy, that was really bad in the Old Testament. I'd hate to be there back then. Well, it says the promises are greater, the punishment is greater under the new. Because now we're not only insulting sacrifices of animals, we're insulting the Son of God who died for sins. So there's the warning. The warning is obviously addressed to the Christian community um, because um, the Jews thought more um, as, as a community than individualistically like we do. So they needed to, the entire community needed to take this to heart. Um, let me see here. Christians who are balking at going on to maturity, whom he fears will consequently go back to their old beliefs, those are the people who are being warned. The rain here, let's go back to the vegetation. So we have the seed planted in the heart, which is the gospel, received by faith. The rain is the Holy Spirit, which is at work in the life of the believer to bring us to maturity. The Holy Spirit, I believe, gives every truly born-again Christian a hunger for the Word of God. That's why it's such a travesty when people go to evangelical churches and they don't get the Word of God. Because if they're truly born of the Spirit, you cannot help but have a hunger for the Word. Because God's Spirit it will produce that hunger. And so if you don't give people the Word of God, you are starving them. Amen. And if people are willing, you know, over months and months and years and years to sit under anything and everything but the Word of God, you got to wonder if they really know the Lord. I think I think the true uh, Christians will be dissatisfied Amen. if they don't get fed, because they're going to starve. And there's a big difference between the Word of God and the wisdom of man. 
<laughs> How many of you know that? The Word of God will change you. The wisdom of man will entertain you or give you some nice ideas, but it won't have the power to change lives. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's look at some of the issues now. The third column, page two here. We're studying Hebrews 4, 6, 4 through 8. And being how I did all this work on it earlier, I'm just um, drawing on that. And the question is now, is the doctrine of the perseverance of, of the saints true? Because that's the main question here. If it's possible to fall away from your faith, well then obviously people may not actually um, be secure in their faith. At least some people might think that and they look at this passage as proof. I don't believe, I do believe in the perseverance of the saints. That's what Dan was just talking about. Because if people have no assurance if their salvation is always dangling you know, on a thin thread, um, thinking it's going to go away. So here's John 6, 37 to 39. It's the strongest, one of the strongest passages about perseverance. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes I will certainly not cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. So all that the Father gives come, all that comes the, the Son preserves, and all that they come are raised up on the last day. This is John 6, 37-39. James White uses this verse in, um, to uh, teach the doctrines of grace and the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Um, and I think it's, if you if you just break it out as far as just the logic in here, it's really airtight. Um, and if you some people don't want to follow John six the way it is here because they they have theological reasons for not wanting to believe this, but I don't think you can get away from it as far as just ex- exegetically in the text. So some people don't believe in perseverance, and that's their business. But I think that it is a biblical doctrine. Here's another way. I sat down with a man who was coming, used to come to church here, and he was very, very upset with me because I taught the perseverance of the saints. And he says, I want you to show me one verse in the Bible that teaches that. I said, okay, which one? And he says, well, just show me a good one. I said, all right. I'll show you one right here that's, that you can't possibly deny. And I took him to Romans 8, 28 to 30. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God who are called according to His purpose. Now, what exactly is working together for good? What is the good? Well, the good is to be ultimately conformed to the image of Christ. Alright, so how's that work? It says, For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Whom He predestined, these He called. Whom He called, He justified. Whom He justified, these He glorified. It's already considered a done deal. So in, in John 6, Jesus promises to raise up all who come, which are all whom the Father's given Him. In John 8, all who are called, all who are justified, are ultimately glorified. Amen. So I told this man, if one person who was at one time justified is later not glorified, then Paul wrote a lie. And God's Word is not cannot lie. So there's your one verse. Well, it's three. <laughs> Amen. And well, he didn't like it. He didn't like it. He said, "Well, that's the case. Why doesn't everybody just go sin and do whatever they want? They know they're going to go to heaven anyhow." And I said, "Well, the, I, I, this was a very... Uh, I, I really like this guy. I believe he had a solid, genuine faith. He just couldn't deal with this verse and, the, and this doctrine." And I said to him, "All right, are you born again?" He says, "Yes, I am." Do you want to go do whatever sin you feel like doing? Because you, let's just say for for the sake of argument that you are eternally secure, even though you don't want to believe that. Even if you knew that right now, would you want to go and do every kind of sin under the world out there? He goes, No, I wouldn't. I don't want to go do that. God saved me out of it. I said, Exactly. You're and and you're no different than anybody else who's truly born again. 
we do sin, but it isn't because we, I mean, we, we feel bad about it. We, and we're like David. We come back and we want to be forgiven. And so the truly regenerate aren't sitting around thinking, gee, I wish I could sin like the devil. You know, and so if God gives me assurance in my salvation, it doesn't make, want me, make me want to go sin. It makes me want to be more like Jesus. But yes. Golfers, I get a kick out of you. You know, you love golf. And you that won't try and improve your game. I don't care what, what, what little club you get or ball or whatever, because you love golf. You know, so you love Jesus Christ. All of a sudden, you love God with your whole heart, mind, and soul. That's what golfers do. That little ball. You know, God bless them. It's a great sport. You know. I think. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. Sunday morning, those that aren't born again, you know. And they do anything because they love it. You know, they love it. Well, what about Jesus Christ? I think he's a little more than a ball that don't talk or, or whatever. So he's joy. So, you know, it just got, you, you, you want to do it. It's a joy. Yeah, I agree. It really is fun. It's yeah. fun. You know, Christians think, oh, it's loving the Lord. Oh, my God. So it's fabulous. Taste and see how good I am, Jesus said. Delight yourself. It's a riot, man. You know, I was a general in the devil's army. I tell you what's hell on earth. It was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Father Krantz is going to get on your case here. <laughs> I had a thought if he was in my conversation, what would I do? <laughs> well, you know what we do? We bring him, we take him out. <laughs> Hebrews um, 10, Hebrews 6. So what do we have here? We have two... This is why people are wanting to understand Hebrews and why they see a problem. We see passages that talk about the assurance of salvation. And then we see passages that warn us about losing it. Apostatizing. How do we bring these two ideas together without having a contradiction in the Bible? That's what's the issue. So true Christians have strong hope based on the promises of God, but yet there's this warning to not put Christ to open shame and end up being judged worse than the people in the Old Covenant. So back to, let's go to page 3 here. Falling away is not a, an acceptable outcome of our faith. <laughs> What's the outcome of our faith? Well, that tells us, uh, Sam, could you look up 1 Peter 1.9? Let's see what the outcome of our faith is. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. <laughs> yeah, the end of your faith, or the word telos, it means the destination. So, um, the outcome or the, the end of our faith, the outcome of our faith is the salvation of our souls. I don't believe the outcome of our faith is apostasy. And I'm going to show you that he, even here in Hebrews, it's, there's assurance given even after the warning. Okay, It says, I'm persuaded of better things concerning you, even though I've spoken in this way, it says there. For those who believe in losing one's salvation should realize that, the, that this section of Hebrews, I'm saying, is not talking about losing and regaining faith, but renouncing it so as to never be able to regain it. It's not being saved and lost and saved. Rather, it's being saved and lost, period, if this were to actually happen. So, the people that are giving altar calls for people that used to be saved and are now lost aren't, certainly aren't thinking about this passage because why would give an altar call? They're not ever going to come back. It's impossible to renew them. Okay. So, I think the altar call is probably for people who are backslid. I can understand that. But apostates won't ever come back. So they, it won't, it, it's not applicable to that practice. Like I said here in my article, there would be no need to call in a traveling evangelist to remedy this situation. <laughs> reprobate. reprobate. Yeah, right. Yeah, it is. It's reprobate. That's true. He, Romans 1. Um, so, uh, where do we go next here? 1 John 5, 8. This, uh, is, I've quoted here in the article, so I'll just read that. 1 John 5, 18, excuse me. We know that no one who is born of God sins. This is a continual in the Greek. 
But he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. That's interesting. That's good to know. The evil one is not going to come and snatch us away from God. Amen. He tempts us. He tries to mess with our minds. He lies to us. There's all kinds of things that the evil one can do, but he can't snatch us away from God. So we... Um, it's an interesting passage. It says, no one who is born of God sins. Now, people look at that and wonder, well, it seems like a contradiction because 1 John 1 says, if we say we have no sin, we lie. Here it says, no one born of God sins. Well, what does that mean? Well, this is in the continual tense in the Greek. Yeah. And so it means that a person who is a Christian falls in the category of those people in Numbers um, 15 who err and sin, but we don't make it our point to sin. It's our desire to be like Jesus. And when we sin, we know we need forgiveness and cleansing. So, perseverance is a promise given in the Old Testament. Um, Jeremiah 32.40, let me quote that to you. And I'll make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. Isn't that interesting? God says, I will put the fear of me in their hearts, in your hearts, so that you don't turn away from me. So we all know we're capable of turning away from God. Right? We're capable of a lot of things because we're sinners saved by grace. But God puts the fear of Him in us so that we don't. That's what God does. Isn't that something? And that's in the Old Testament. It says that God would do that. And that's what He did for David. Alright, how do we solve the problem? I'm going to give three possibilities here and settle on one of them. Three possible ways. The problem is the warning about apostasy and the promise of perseverance seem to be contradictory. Now, how do we solve that dilemma? Because the Bible cannot contradict itself. Position one. I'm going to give three positions, and I'm going to defend the third one. Position one says this. True Christians do apostatize. The first of these possibilities is, the, I think, the least attractive. Though the language of Hebrews 6, 4, 3 is vivid and concrete, especially the New American Standard, it's not clear that the author had in mind any of his readers because the author repeatedly gives stern warning coupled with assurance that his readers had not already fallen. For example, after the extended warning of falling into unbelief and failing to enter God's rest in chapters 3 and 4, the author concludes, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall. Okay, so he hadn't assumed that anybody had actually done it at that point. The warning is, I don't want you to do it. You certainly could, and it seems like you're being tempted to, but I don't want it to happen. All right. The warning was to motivate, not to condemn. Likewise, our warning passage in Hebrews 6 is followed by this assessment of the, his reader's own condition. Quote, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. Hebrews 6, 9. Now that's the passage, by the way, that gave me the clue of how to interpret this, in my, I believe. Though we are, so he know he knows the author of Hebrews. Though, though we are speaking this way, this is strong language. This is serious. But yet, that doesn't mean I think that you're irredeemably lost your salvation. Because I I think I believe that uh, better things about you, things that accompany salvation. And then he goes on. But we are not those who shrink back to destruction but those who have faith to preserving of the soul. Hebrews 10.39 So in Hebrews 3, we have warning followed by assurance. Hebrews 6, we have a warning followed by assurance. Hebrews 10, we have a warning followed by assurance. So the that's going to help me interpret this. Okay, We here is the Christian community, the author included, it is clear that the writer of Hebrews did not believe, did believe in persevering faith. He evidently believed the Holy Spirit's warning would be effectual. That's the position I believe. So I don't think 
that true Christians actually, if they're born again, will commit apostasy. God will keep us from that. Lonnie. Well, yeah, and uh, the author of Hebrews is not going to know the heart of his audience. Right. So he should have that in there in case there are people in there that are just in it for the ride. Yep. And, and I think these people, they're looking at something that they can get on this earth using uh, their faith rather than the eternal. Right, exactly. And that's another reason for preaching the whole counsel of God, Lonnie, because in any congregation, God knows the heart. We don't. In any congregation, there may be people who are unconverted but have mental assent and think they're Christians. And these kind of warnings can actually be something that God can use to bring people to the gospel. The, and when I was in Bible college, they used to talk about people being gospel-hardened. And, and, and what they were talking about was kids that grew up in the evangelical church. And, oh yeah, I heard all that. I know all those things. And they um, sometimes don't really, Amen. they don't really have the kind of faith, the saving faith. And I've seen God use these warnings. Warnings are a good thing. Amen. It's a good thing to preach about hell. Amen. <laughs> Robert Schuller, notwithstanding. Too many churches have been Schulerized, I call it. <laughs> Schuler got to them, and out goes the gospel. You know, I heard a great um, testimony about preaching like this. When I was at seminary, I had a professor, Dr. Brooks, fantastic Bible scholar, brilliant man, all kinds of you know studies and accolades and written books, but he was really a very dry teacher. I mean, he just didn't have presence. He couldn't, he couldn't pizzazz. The, he could hardly even get a discussion going. He would just kind of read off his notes. and So most of the students didn't care for his class, but I did because I just loved his brilliance and I, I could learn even from somebody who's not a great orator. Well, so this kind of dry, unemotional guy had been kept teaching through his class. We got into, we were going, finally got into Revelation. And we got into the part in, toward the end of Revelation where it talks about the lake of fire. And all of a sudden, this dry, unemotional guy started sharing from his heart with, with tears. And this, this, he was just retiring. He was in his late 60s. This man said this. He says, I, I says every time I get to this passage, I, I, I just have to tell you what happened to me. He says, I was, a, I was, grew up in a church, but I really didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And I was a young lad, and um, before TV, listening to the radio, and he said uh, uh, a preacher, a radio preacher came on, and he was preaching about the lake of fire. And he preached a sermon about the reality of hell, and how it is that you were going to end up there. And how it is that you could avoid it through the gospel. And he says, and I met Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior listening to that sermon about hell on the radio. This was before World War II. And he later ended up being a pilot on um, aircraft carriers in the Mediterranean Sea. But this man said this. He says, don't be ashamed to preach anything in the Bible because you might think that this is something that people would be turned off by. But I was saved because somebody was willing to preach from the revelation about hell. I, I thought that was a, quite a story. And he's, and I, I totally agree with that. What we think might offend somebody might actually save them. But isn't the preaching of the gospel offensive to them that perish? Yeah. Yeah, amen. He said, <laughs> no, yeah, Dad, why don't you speak up? <laughs> I think, I think, <laughs> Pastor, I think Pastor Kranz has a calming effect on Dan over here. You know, we're always talking about sins of commission. 
I mean, they get kicked out of that, falling away into believers. You don't want to sin, you don't want to sin. You know, when I was with all the legalists, born again legalists, nobody wants to deal with the sins of omission. That's what everybody gets here with. He that knoweth to do good and doth not sin. All we can think about is sinning is going out and all doing these sins of commission. But walking out that door and talking, if you prayed and said, Lord, I want to talk to the first man to meet in the streets about the Lord. The sins of omission we are guilty of and can't escape. So it's mercy every second of the day because we know what we should do, our neighbors, and everything we don't do. It isn't always drunk and we pick on a guy drunk and a prostitute and we just want to do all these sins. How many times we're racist as believers? How many times we do so many things that are omitted that only God knows in our so we're sinners from So we we need the blood. So the more we realize about ourselves, the more thankful Amen. for the mercy. I agree. Okay, let's go to position two. Position one was that true that true believers do lose their salvation. I don't think that's very good doctrine. No, no. no. That's not good doctrine. And it's and I think you're right, Dan. Uh and I heard Dave Hunt say this also when he was here. That that's one of the big problems with Roman Catholicism is that people are never given any assurance. I just got an email from my Roman Catholic uh, nemesis. Uh, uh, there's this Catholic guy that goes through every one of my articles and then call, then he emails me about errors that he finds in them, which is okay. But he says he he says he, here's what his email says. I have a question for you. Are you 100% infallibly Sure of your salvation. In other words, he wanted to know if my assurance of salvation was infallible. Well, then, of course, if I say yes, then he says, well, then why can't the Pope be infallible? You claim you are. I know. I I gave him an answer. But he he was a load of questions. So I said, said, my assurance is based on the infallibility of God's promise, not the infallibility of me. That was my answer. Well, we need it. We definitely need assurance. Okay, position two. Apostates were never truly regenerate. This is a very, very, most people hold to this position. That apostates were never truly regenerate. The second possibility has more work to commend it, I say. Uh, the strength of this view is that the biblical examples of apostates fall into this category. The clearest New Testament apostate is who? Judas. I mean, he's the prototypical apostate. Alright? Uh, Judas had all the privileges of the other disciples. He'd gone out with them. He'd healed the sick, cast out demons, shared their privileges, learned at the feet of Messiah. Yet he had a demon and he died in his own miserable sin. And it says in Matthew 7, 22 and 23, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, then I will declare to them, um, you lost your salvation. No, is that what he says? No, no, no. he says, no, that's not what he says. He says, yeah, we'll declare to them, I never knew you. Yeah, see the difference? He doesn't say you lost your salvation. He says, I never knew you. Yes. That's Esau that was sought to, sought repentance and couldn't find it. He, well, there was a passage in there. Remember, he threw the money back in. in um, uh, but see, the word repent has a range of meaning, okay? And it can it can go from just simply changing your mind, I changed my mind, to truly being converted, and you have to look at the context. But I think the Bible doesn't give us any assurance that Judas is going to be in heaven. I don't think. Right? But he's but he noticed Matthew seven. He says, "I never knew you." No, in the is a Hebrew way of th- saying have a relationship with. So these had indications of involvement with the work of the Holy Spirit. Yet Christ said he never knew them. There's Simon Simon Magi or Magus of Acts eight. Um, you, you know that story in Acts 8? This guy heard the preaching, repented, was baptized. I said he believed, he was repented, he was baptized. And then when the disciples came and laid hands on the people, he wanted to buy the gift. 
from the apostles? And what did, what did Peter say? May your money perish with you. And the word perish there means to go to hell. So that's a possibility that it's one of those kinds. John says this in John 1 John 2.19 They went out from us, but they were not really of us, for they, had they been of us, they would have remained with us. Notice that if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they are not all of us. So there's this class of people who are Christians, who have a shared experiences with the larger community, but were not truly regenerate. Their leaving was what ultimately showed their true condition. Furthermore, the parable of the sower and the seeds predicts a variety of responses to the Word of God, including joyful reception eventually gives way to falling away. Alright? So we have a number of passages that would indicate there are going to be people who will come in, they will say, praise God for the Gospel, and I'm a Christian, and then after a while they'll just go away. And Jesus said, I never knew you. Can you not help but fall away when your house is built on sand, God said? If it's built on sand, it will what? Well, that, yeah, that's the same passage in Matthew 7. If you build, build the building on sand. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's, I'll see if I can't quick wrap this up here. The whole of Israel was the community of faith, but some of them perished. So I think in a communal sense, within the Christian community, there will be apostates who are people who came, received it with joy, Maybe did some, had some signs prophesied, cast out demons or whatever, like these people, but they go away. And they, yes. Saul is a good example. Saul was one of these two. Alright? So you look in the Old Testament, you have such a thing. Now the position three, that is one I defend, is that the warning is effectual. Um, and it would mean this. The warning against apostasy is a means that God uses to keep His own people from apostasy. They they read the warning and they become convicted and they realize that they're in trouble and they repent and don't actually apostatize. And I think that's what the warning is intended to do. So... What I conclude then is that you can actually take position two and position three and hold to both of them because they're not mutually exclusive. And here's how I do that. Position two are apostates or like Judas, like the people in Matthew 7, like 1 John 2, they went out from us but they were not really of us, that there will be a class of people like that who we could call apostates. Position three, that for the, in the case of the truly regenerate, the warning will be effectual and God will keep us. And there's nothing mutually exclusive. Both of those classes of people can exist and do exist. So that's how I understand Hebrews. Who we love be disciplined. Why would he discipline his children? Yeah. Well, yeah. You're Ill- otherwise, you're illegitimate, and that's in Hebrews chapter 12, which we'll get to uh, next year or the year after. <laughs> at this rate <laughs> we don't exactly go zipping through the Bible here we don't do a little uh, walk through the Bible we do uh, expound it so that covers Hebrews 6 4 through 8 so next week we'll start at verse 9 and go from there so that's pretty good we got through all those verses in two weeks <laughs> All right, thank you for participating, and we'll see you upstairs in about half.